Well, good morning, Fellowship Bible Church and those who may be tuning in to us this morning. We're glad you're with us. Um, I think it'd be appropriate for us this morning as we begin our time in the study of the Word of God just to begin with a word of prayer. So I'll ask you to bow with me as I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these moments. As unusual as it may be for us in this time, as we are physically apart as a church, but together here this morning via technology, as your providence has allowed us to live during these days, Lord, we ask that you would attend to our time, that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth of what your word says to us and how we are to think. These are for many anxious times, and yet for us as Christians, these are very exciting times because we worship a living and true God. We worship the only God who is in control of all things. And so we know, even though we don't have all the answers, we know that you are in control. And so we trust you. We thank you for challenging and endure and strengthening our faith. And so, Lord, this morning, as we open your word together, we pray that you would attend to us, that your spirit would illumine our hearts and our minds, and that our day would be filled with joy and a greater understanding of who you are in this very day. So thank you for this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me this morning and return to our study of Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, as we return to this wonderful book that the Apostle Paul has given to us through the providence of God, through the leading of the Holy Spirit. Of course, last Lord's Day, we took a slight detour from this current study just so that we could spend some time getting a clear vision, clearing up the fog that we might have had on Christian living during this current world pandemic that we are living through right now under the providence of our gracious God, of course. And that study from First Peter last week and our current study in Romans that we have been in for some time has the same underlying, if not the same direct, theme. In fact, it is the doctrinal theme that we have been spending time on since Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, and that is the theme of Christian behavior. We could even say that this is about sanctification, the Christian sanctification, the way in which God makes us practically holy or living lives that are separate from the way the world or the way we used to live prior to Christ, the process by which God is making us into the likeness of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, since chapter 12 and verse 1, we have been hearing over and over again about the practical ways that we as Christians are to be living. And you remember, just by way of reminder in chapter 12 and verse 1, that the Christian is, in light of our understanding of the unfathomable mercy and grace of God that has been lavished upon us in our salvation, that God has granted us by means of the imputation of our sins to Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to us, we are to present ourselves, it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, present ourselves as living sacrifices, as living sacrifices. In other words, continually live in word and deed as one who is offering themselves to the implementation of God's will in our life to the implementation of God's will in our life, a life that is different in every way, a life, as Paul says there in verse 1 of chapter 12, that is holy, 
a holy sacrifice, one that is set apart, one that is different, one that is unlike it used to be prior to salvation, one that is different from those who do not know Jesus Christ. In other words, one that is glorifying God, one that is reflecting His character through our words and our deeds. And that transformation, that different living, that exercise of practical life will come, Paul says, as we have our minds renovated by the Word. You see that in verse 2 of chapter 12. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, that is simply to say that we will not live out in our practical living, in our Christian lives, we will not live out, in fact, we cannot live out that which we do not know. It is impossible for us to do what we are required to do and what we ought to be doing by way of our behavior in the Christian life if we do not know what it is we ought to be doing. We must know what God requires so that we can live as God requires. And that means that the way we think needs to be renovated. It needs to be transformed, as Paul says here in verse 2 of chapter 12. We need to think with the mind of Christ. We need to have God's thoughts in our hearts and our minds. Our thinking needs to be redone, re-venerate, re 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 renovated. I'll get the word right. It needs to be renovated so that our actions will be changed. When that happens, when that happens in us, when that happens with us, we will live out the will of God in every place, in everything that we do. We will exercise our spiritual gifts in the church, as Paul said in verse 6 through 8, right? We have gifts given to us by God, and when our minds are renovated, when we're thinking rightly about who we are in Christ and the salvation we have by the mercy of God, we will live out the giftedness within the body of Christ, His church. We will, in our secular lives, honor, as we saw in chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, we will honor the authority that God has placed over us in this life, which, by the way, is one practical way that God has designed to show honor to Him. We honor Him through honoring the authority He has placed over us, since we understand that He has raised up all authority. When we honor that authority, we honor Him. So what we are really talking about, what Paul has been dealing with since chapter 12, is this whole issue of sanctification, the practical living out of our salvation here on this earth until the time when God providentially brings us to Himself. In a nutshell, we are learning, as I've said in the past, how to adorn the gospel, how to wear the gospel as our clothing, if you will, how to wear the gospel in our very lives. We are learning how to not just say that we are Christians, but we are learning how to actually show that we are Christians. Because Christianity is not simply words. It is not simply people just saying they are Christians. A Christian is not someone who simply claims to know God or to know Jesus. There are many in the world, many within false religions, in fact, who claim to know Jesus. It, it was like that since the very beginning. In fact, Jesus dealt with people like that. He said to the, the Pharisees, you say you know God, but you don't know God because you hate me. So a Christian isn't someone who simply says they know God. A Christian is someone whose life in actions, in words and deeds, proves the validity of the claim. How? By the reality of a changed life. This is why it's an absolute impossibility to find in Scripture someone who is a true Christian who has not had a changed life or life isn't changing. Because that's what Christianity is. God changes you. He makes you new in every way. And a life that lives for God, because you're a 
Christian, you live for God not to gain some kind of merit, not to gain some kind of standing with God by way of your works that that you pile up this stack of good deeds so that God would accept you. No, rather because you have been saved by the grace and mercy of God through faith, which is a gift of God. Therefore, in light of that, you live in honor of God. So Christians are clearly different people. They're different people than all the other people in the world who are not Christians. And this is what we have been learning in Romans chapter 12 and 13. And so this morning, I I, I want to begin to look at these final verses of chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. I want to begin to look at them as we think through three more practical insights for our Christian living that Paul gives us. Three more practical insights that we hear from the Apostle Paul in reference to our Christian living. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 11, the Apostle Paul says this, And this do, knowing the time, that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, nor in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now, again, the Apostle Paul is emphasizing this issue of Christian behavior. And he is reminding us that proper Christian conduct always, you might want to just write that near your passage near these verses, Christian conduct always or is always the outcome, Christian conduct is always the outcome and implementation of an understanding of doctrinal truth. Let me say that again. Christian conduct, Christian behavior is always the outcome and implementation of of an understanding of doctrinal truth. In other words, for you and I as Christians to live as God has designed us to live, we must understand doctrine. It is sad to hear today in the church at large so many places putting a bad spin on the issue of doctrine as if doctrine is a bad thing. You cannot live your Christian life properly and in honor to God without understanding doctrine. And that is exactly why Paul is emphasizing it for us here. He is emphasizing for us here in verses 11 through 13, he is emphasizing the doctrine of eschatology. Eschatology, or the doctrine of last things. We might even call it, I like this term for it, the doctrine of God's ultimate purpose. The doctrine of God's ultimate purpose. And so here in verse 11, this becomes our first practical insight for Christian living in these final verses. Verse 11 says, and this do knowing the time, knowing the time. So here's the first practical insight that we're going to discuss this morning. Redeem the time. Redeem the time. You've probably noticed in the last month, several weeks at least, one of the greatest difficulties that we struggle with as Christians is motivation. Motivation. Each and every one of us because we are still here on this earth in these mortal bodies, each and every one of us battles against the tendency of our old self and its unwillingness to do what we should be doing. In other words, we need motivation. And that is what the Apostle Paul has been giving us since the beginning of chapter 12, actually. 
different motivations for Christian living that are based upon doctrine, that are based upon an understanding of doctrine. And Paul has been using doctrine in order in that way so that we would have a motivation for doing what we ought to do. In other words, do what chapters 12, verse 1 and 2 says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, right? Don't be conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Understand those things and in view of, do those things in view of these doctrines. And the one that he is exhorting us concerning right now is this doctrine of last things. In other words, in order to motivate us to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God, in order for us to do all that He has told us already to do, then understand doctrine. And one of the doctrines that we must understand is this doctrine of ultimate purpose, the doctrine of God's ultimate purpose, or the doctrine of last things as we have called it. If we are going to redeem the time, we have to understand last things. And this, of course, is something that clearly shows us as Christians as someone different in the world, an understanding of last things. Because what shows us different in the world cannot simply be the ethics by which we live. What shows us different as Christians in the world can't simply be the things that we do, as some define it, morality, the the moral aspect of our life. Why? Because even the world can and does ethical things that appear to be and do very similarly the very things that Christians do, if not the very same kinds of things that Christians do. You can even notice it in our day and age in which we're living today, in these days that we are currently in. There are plenty of non-Christian entities, plenty of non-Christian individuals, who are doing very altruistic things, altruistic activities, things that will help their fellow man in this crisis that we are in. And so many of those people who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ will criticize Christianity, and they will badmouth Christianity because they see very little difference between what we do and what someone else might be doing. In fact, you may have heard it someone who you might share the gospel with. They say, well, I'm a good person. And they do very, at least on a human perspective, very good things. There's very little difference in what they're doing. But what the critics of Christianity miss, what the critics of Christianity don't get about true Christianity is something they don't have any idea about. It's it's something they know nothing about and something they frankly aren't even interested in, and that is the truth about last things. The distinguishing mark between why you and I as Christians do what we do and why the world does what it does has everything to do with our view of eschatology, with our view of last things. Let, let me just put that in a statement for our time right now, today. Our individual view and our individual behavior in this current crisis, in this current moment of time in which we are living by God's providence, our view and our behavior has everything to do with our understanding of this doctrine of last thing. Everything to do with it. How we live today and how we are behaving today has everything to do with our view of eschatology. The Bible looks at everything in light of the ultimate destiny that awaits all people. That's how the Bible views it. Not only every one of us individually, but the whole world and everything that has ever been created. The Bible looks at it from a perspective of last things or eschatology. So if we are to redeem the time, then we better pay attention to the doctrine of eschatology. Because if we don't understand it, 
then we will miss one of the best motivators that God has given us for Christian living. In fact, Paul has hinted to it already in our study. I didn't highlight it when we were studying back in chapter 12, but I want to highlight it this morning. Chapter 12, notice what Paul says again, right? Present yourselves by the mercies of God. Present your bodies living in holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is a spiritual service of worship. In other words, this is normal. This is, this is the very beginning line of who we are in Christ. When we understand salvation, this is how we start living. And he says in verse 2, do not be conformed, notice, to this world. Now, right out of the gate, verse 2 of chapter 12, Paul is hinting to us of another world. Specifically, not this world. There is another world. There is the world which we live in, this world, and there is an unseen spiritual world. And so notice, back in chapter 13 and verse 11, what Paul says, And this do, or do these things, knowing the time. Knowing the time. You notice that the Apostle Paul is assuming that we know something that he's going to talk about. We know something about what he is about to say. In other words, his entire exhortation to us is based upon our knowledge of these things. This is not new in Scripture, of course. The Apostle John spoke with similar terms and similar ideas and similar themes in his epistles. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 21, he's even a bit more direct in the same way when he says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth but because you do know it. So there's even more direct. John's saying, these things I'm writing to you, not because you're clueless to the things that I'm saying, but because as a Christian, you know these things. This is absolute truth. Peter does the same thing, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, where he is says he's stirring them up by way of reminder. So Peter's using the same thing. He's saying, listen, I'm not telling you something new. I'm telling you something you already know. And I'm going to remind you of it continually because this helps motivate you in the direction you should go. And so we begin our time with a question then this morning. Here's the question for us. Do we know these things? Do we know these things? Are we ultimately acquainted? Are we intimately and ultimately acquainted with these truths concerning last things or concerning the ultimate purpose of God in all things? Do we realize how important and how vital this doctrine is for our practical living? Do we understand that? Because if we don't know it, then we will not rightly be motivated to live as we ought. If we don't know it, then we're not going to live as God has called us to live. And so what is this doctrine really about? And what should we know in this doctrine? Well, notice what Paul says. And this do, knowing the time, knowing the time. Now, this is the first thing. First thing here is that very issue. If we retain the time, then we have to realize the significance and the importance of the time which we live. We have to understand the significance and the importance of the time in which God has providentially placed us. What Paul means here is not some contemporary event. We're not talking necessarily about the event that's happening in our time, the one that 
that you all know about, that you're thinking about, that probably was on your mind this morning and will be on your mind this evening. He's not talking about these events. There are plenty of places in Scripture where there's special events being talked about when it speaks of time. Scripture speaks of Jesus' birth as a, as a time, right? Uh, sufferings of the saints, that's, a, that's another special time. But that's not what Paul means here. What Paul is saying here and what he is referring to is what differentiates you and I as Christians from the rest of the world. And what makes us different is our point of view concerning time in history, how we look at the world in reference to time in history. Paul is saying to us as Christians, you know the time. You know the time. You understand the time. You understand the period of time in which you are living. And the, the, what he's, he's meaning is not the difference between our modern time and the times of history, but the reality of time as it is redemptive history. Redemptive history. We understand that time. That's what he's talking about. In fact, It's interesting in our day and within this present crisis in our world that the issue of time is on the minds of all people. The world is looking at time in a linear fashion. That's how the world looks at time. That's all they can do is look at time in a linear fashion. They look at time in a historical way so that they can respond to what is happening today They hope that they can respond in such a way that it will shorten the duration of whatever event they're living through. And, of course, we see that happening in the responses even in our own day. And why do they do that? Because that's how unsaved man must look at it. That's how they have to look at it. Because that's all they have. All they have is a linear view of time. All they have is that linear view of history. And yet, as they study history, as they look at history, they come to the conclusion that history simply just repeats itself. Wars of the past become new wars of the future. Pandemics of the past just become new pandemics in the future. And because of the transitory nature of life today, As always, all people have been made to think in a new way about the meaning of life and time. But what a difference there is when we understand the biblical view. What a difference there is when you and I as Christians understand what the Bible declares, when it's the Christian view. Because we understand that the Bible tells us that there is, are two types of history, two types of history. There is the history that God permits. In other words, we're not machines, right? We're not automatons that just go around doing our machine-like activities as if we have no input into all of that. God allows us to do certain things, but always under his control. Right, And we call this, or we see this in the Bible, as a permissive will. The will of God by which he permits things to happen. Even the devil, even the devil himself, who has power, can only exercise his power under the control of God's permissive will. You can just read Job chapter 1 and see that very clearly. And so God permits man's linear history. That's what he permits but it is still permitted under his control. He's still controlling it all. So that's the first type. That's the first type of history we see in the Bible. And we see this permissive history running throughout the scriptures. But there's a second type of history. And the second one is what Paul is referring here to in Romans chapter 13 and verse 11, when he says, knowing the time, the history of God's plan and purpose for the world. That's that's the history that Paul's referring to. And that is the history that is known as God's directive will or God's decreed will. In other words, he doesn't simply permit it. He produces it. This is a God-produced history. 
And the produced history that we understand from Scripture is a redemptive history. God is producing a redemptive history. And the Bible shows that God uses His permissive will, His linear laying out of history and allowing of history as a background for the outworking of his decreed will or his redemptive history. That's what you see going on in the scriptures. And it is his directive will or his redemptive history that really matters. And that's what Paul has in mind here in verse 11, knowing the time, knowing the redemptive history of God. So when we think about redemptive history, what are we to think about? What are we to know? What are we to know? Paul says, and do this knowing the time. Do this understanding this time. What are we to understand? What are we to know about the redemptive history of God? Well, the first thing we know is this. It is a history that is predetermined by God. It is a history that is predetermined by God. In other words, he plans it all. He plans it all and ensures it all. For example, you think about prophecy in the Scriptures. You can go read through the Old Testament from Genesis all the way through Malachi, and you read prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. You get into the New Testament, there is prophecy there. The Bible is filled with prophecy. And if we understand prophecy to be foretelling... That's what it is, telling before it ever comes to be. Then prophecy is only possible because God has predetermined that certain things should happen at a given time. God has a directive will that is predetermining while he allows the permissive will to take place. In fact, Galatians 4 4 says it this way, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son. The fullness of time. When, when in God's linear history had uh, permissively allowed it to take place, when that fullness of time, the pre, because it had been redempt, part of redemptive history, when that had come to its place, God sent forth His Son. It was a predetermined plan. One who was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. When we were haters of God, yet enemies of God, in due time, in the preemptive, or in the decretive history of God, in His predetermined plan, God had Christ die for the ungodly. So redemptive history is the predetermined plan of God. That's something we ought to know about it. But secondly, it is that progressive history. Progressive history, right? This is the second thing. It's predetermined history, but it's a progressive history that's always leading to a predetermined plan. That's what I mean. It's always leading to a predetermined end. Acts 15, verse 18 says, Known to God from eternity are all His works. In other words, God knows everything that He's going to do. It's predetermined, and He's going to carry them out in a progressive way. God knows the end from the beginning. That means God does not work in some haphazard way. He is not doing it willy-nilly. He's not reacting to the moment. He isn't learning as if he didn't know something and now he has to respond in some kind of reactive kind of way. In other words, the end comes when God says it comes, not one moment before and not one moment after. I have a dear friend and pastor friend whose wife is currently on her sickbed on her deathbed, actually, and she has been fighting cancer for many, many years, and now she is on her last days. But that's all we can say. She's on her last days. We don't know the moment. We don't know the time, and it will not come one moment before nor one moment after. And we understand, then, that God is always, therefore, the initiator. God is always the initiator. God is always the prime mover. In all of history, his, ha- his planned 
He has planned the whole history from the foundation of the world, and he's bringing it to pass as events in this world, such as the one we are in right now, are taking place in time. God is there orchestrating it all. Why? Because of redemptive history. And it's only us. It is only you and I as Christians. It's only we who understand through Jesus Christ that our eyes have been opened, that our understanding in our heart has been opened to the truth of the Word of God. It's only us who know this. No one else knows this. The world doesn't know this. The world is reacting on a linear level, but we are reacting in a whole other way because we know this. The world doesn't have any idea. They don't understand redemptive history, but we do. We do. And so redemptive history is predetermined. Redemptive history is being carried out progressively as God works out his plan in time. And thirdly, this history that we know must always be thought of in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to always be thought of in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is probably the most important aspect of understanding redemptive history and understanding the doctrine of last things. You ask the question of yourself, how is time divided? How is time divided? Because even our world, even the world in which we live divides time, and they do it unbelievingly in reference to Jesus Christ. Because there is B.C. time and there is A.D. time. The world doesn't understand why it does that. But the Christian does. You and I know. We understand why it does that. Because the Bible always divides time in reference to Jesus Christ. Always. In fact, there is the time in the Scriptures before Jesus Christ came to the world. We know that, we see that, we read it throughout the Old Testament, and then you get to the Gospels, in the beginning of the Gospels, Jesus enters into the scene and place. That was the time, there was this time before Jesus came in the world, then there's this time when Jesus was, how he lived in this world, how he walked on this earth, how he taught on this earth, how he interacted with humanity on this earth. And there is a time when he will come back to this world. It's all in reference to Jesus Christ. Remember, I quoted and read Galatians 4.4 just a minute ago. Here's, I'll read it again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. All in reference to time. All in reference to the before Jesus wasn't here, then Jesus came. And the Bible clearly stipulates that Jesus will Come again. In other words, the time of expectation was over. Galatians 4 4. The time of expectation was over, and in the directive will of God, Jesus came. And then, and then there's this great statement in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and following. Just listen to this. For the grace of God has appeared, speaking of Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, talking to believers, training us to what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, in light of Jesus coming, in light of the salvation you have, it's training us, that view, that understanding is training us to live godly lives in this present age. How? How do we do that? Titus chapter 2 tells us, waiting, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, it goes from the past to the present to the future. That's how we live. We live knowing, knowing that Jesus, there was a time when Jesus hadn't come, and then he came. We believe we're saved in Christ, and now we live in light of that, looking to this blessed hope, the appearing in glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these 
be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. 2 Peter 3.14, waiting for these. What are the these? What are the these that they're waiting for? Well, it's all that Peter speaks about in the previous verse, in chapter 3, verse 13. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That, waiting for those, the new heaven, the new earth where righteousness dwells, that's, that's, what, that's what we're waiting for. Those things, according to those things, Peter says, since you are waiting for those, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And then Peter goes on in verse 15 of that same chapter and says, and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. In other words, the longer God waits to come back, it just means salvation for those whom he's chosen to save. Salvation, consider it salvation. And he says, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. I wonder if Peter there in 2 Peter chapter 3 is thinking of Romans chapter 11 as Paul has written to us. Think on these things. Have an eschatological mind. This is so important for us, beloved, if we're going to walk obediently and behave obediently and behave rightly, especially in this time. Paul is saying to us, do this knowing the time. Do this, knowing the time. Knowing that the redemptive history of God is what you know. What you know. And what you live according to. Know the redemptive history. Know what the world's, not the world's linear history, not not the world's linear view of history and how that determines time for us. Don't live like that. Don't live according to that. No, we are living, no matter what happens around us, no matter what's going on around us, we are living in the age, in the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. That's where we're living. That's the time that we are in. We're in that time in between. That's the time that we must understand. This is the interval between what God has done and what God is coming to do. That's what we understand. We can even say, as Paul is saying to these Roman Christians, we are living in the final period in the history of the world. You ever think of it like that? We are living, you and I right now, in the period, in the final history of the world. In other words, this is the last section of time. This is the last section of time because when Christ comes again, this time will be no more. It'll be gone. It's over. And so as Paul is giving us this first practical insight here in Romans chapter 11 into our Christian living, how we live, how we continue on, how we go from one day to the next. Live as you ought, motivated. Live as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, motivated, motivated by your understanding of the time in which you live. The time between Christ's first coming, Christ's second coming. Not in light of natural linear history. Don't live in light of that. Live in light of redemptive history. Redemptive history. Because as Paul said to these believers, notice, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. That's just terminology that goes from, from darkness to light or, or uh, incoherence to coherence. It's already time for you to live rightly. I mean, this is already the time for you to live rightly because now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Your, your final salvation The salvation when you and I will be with Christ, as Christ returns, we will be with Christ. Our final salvation is nearer today than when we first believed. And as Christians, know the time. Understand the time, Paul says. Know it. 
and understand it. Because we know that what really matters is not what man does. That's not what matters. What matters is what God has done in this world through his only begotten son. That's what matters. What God has done in this world through Jesus Christ, Christ has come. Christ has lived here on this earth. He was born and he has borne the sins of all whom he has chosen to save. He died. He rose again. The enemy is conquered. Don't, don't ever get the idea that he isn't conquered. He is a conquered foe, regardless of what we see around us. He has ascended. Christ has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he is waiting as Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 13 says, he is waiting till all his enemies are made his footstool. We are living in this last period of the history of the world. This is the last period of the history of the world. Once Christ comes, the history of the world is over. Our Christian conduct is to be governed by this understanding. If we do not or will not Start with this knowledge. Then all of our attempts at Christian behavior will only be shined up moralism. That's all it will be. We'll be just like the world around us and the people who do altruistic things for the sake of their own patting on the back, thinking that they're pleasing God and yet they are not pleasing God. That's all it'll be if we don't live according to an understanding of the redemptive history of God. And if we don't live rightly, it helps no one. Not only does it not help our sanctification, not only are we just stagnant Christians, but we're not adorning the gospel. It won't help us to be sanctified. It doesn't help others see the gospel of Jesus Christ in us. And so these are very important truths as the Apostle Paul takes us through them. By the mercies of God, present your bodies, living, holy, sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what we're, we're having done. Every time we open the Word of God together, we're, we're having our minds renovated so that we might prove what the will of God is. Permissive will, decreed will, that which is good, acceptable, perfect. Paul says, listen, live in light of the doctrine. Live in light of the truth. Let that motivate you. Let that be the motivation of your heart that you might know what is right. The night is almost gone. That's that's the, the... Night is a term for sinful, the realm of sinfulness. That's, that's almost over. It's, it's almost over. The day is at hand. It's time to live for Christ. Well, he goes on, the rest, end of verse 12, let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness. That's the deeds of sinfulness. Put on the armor of light. Let's adorn ourselves with the life of Jesus Christ. There's so much there, we don't have time to get into it this morning in verse 12, but simply you can see the pattern. You can see where Paul is going in this, I trust. And so redeem the time, that's the issue. Redeem the time. Live out your Christian life as you ought to live it out with your mindset on the redemptive history that God is carrying out. Don't be tied up in the linear history of the world and the circumstances around you. Don't get all tied up in that. Redeem the time by understanding the time. Know God's ultimate purpose for it all, and that is redemption. Focused through and by Jesus Christ. That's why he's going to say in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll only do that if we understand the time. And so that's our exhortation this morning. That's what the Lord would have us for this morning. Redeem the time. Just so you have it too, by the way, just before we close in a word of prayer, we're going to see him 
exhort us not simply to redeem the time, but to put off the flesh. And then the third will be to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Redeem the time, put off the flesh, and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Very familiar themes to us who understand the Scriptures. So I'm thankful you were with us this morning. Let's bow for a word of prayer and ask that God would impress these things upon our hearts. Heavenly Father, we're thankful, thankful that we could be here this day, that we could be together even though we're not physically together, that we could come together around your word, that you have given us this privilege and that it allows us, Lord, to be challenged. Lord, we pray that our view of the days in which we live would be rightly focused, that you would take our hearts and massage it, massage this truth into us and help us understand where maybe we weren't thinking about time rightly. And now we have a better understanding of that. Certainly we can understand all that you will do when you do come. But Father, you want us to understand the time in which we are living, even right now, not in a linear fashion, but in a redemptive way. Help us to redeem the time, redeem it in that way, knowing that we live in a unique moment of your redemptive history. And when Christ returns, that will end. And so let us be those who proclaim the gospel because we live in this redemptive history. Let us be those who focus our lives on adorning the gospel because we want others to see Christ. Let us be those who understand the truth of this grand doctrine so that you might be glorified and honored through us, we pray. And Lord, we do pray that this time in which we live this linear history that you are permitting. Lord, we do pray as people here that it would end quickly, not for the sake of the reality of this isolation that we seem to feel, but so that we could join together once again in physical proximity and rejoice together in song and in prayer and interaction with one another. Lord, we pray that you would allow that to happen, but we trust you in the process. We trust that you will encourage our hearts as we work to encourage one another through different means. And we trust that you will allow us to be encouraged as others reach out to us. Lord, those who are lonely, those who are, who are feeling uh, isolated in ways that are unnatural, Lord, we pray that you would encourage their hearts, that they would open your word and trust themselves to you. And if there be those in the midst who are listening even now who do not know Christ, Lord, we pray that they would repent of their sin, turn to Jesus Christ, the only hope, know true redemption, know what salvation is, that they might live rightly even now. And we could be a beacon, a light, a source, a word of truth to those around us and why we are not fretting and why we are encouraged even when it seems like we shouldn't be. So thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of it, the truth of it, and how it it so challenges us and teaches us. Lord, what a gracious God you are. Bless us now for the rest of our days, and we'll meet again next Sunday. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.